Welcome to Book Rising, a podcast by the Radical Books Collective. Thanks everyone for tuning back in to Book Rising. I'm Meg Ehrenberg, host of the Radical Publishing Futures series, and today I'm here with Rob Page, CEO and founder of Comma Press, a nonprofit publishing house based in Manchester. Comma specializes in the short story in the form of both single author collections and multiple author anthologies, publishing work by both UK-based and international writers, often in translation. Kama also does a great deal to support aspiring writers, translators, and publishers to enter the industry, offering courses, conferences, seminars, and mentorship schemes, and other supports for overcoming the barriers that arise from persistent biases in publishing. Among these are the National Creative Writing Industry Day and the Manchester in Translation Conference, which Kama hosts every year. Rob Page himself has edited over 20 anthologies and prior to founding Kama Press also worked as a journalist and filmmaker. He has also founded and coordinated a number of publisher development initiatives, including the Northern Fiction Alliance, which is a radical collective of small independent presses based in the North of England. Welcome to Book Rising, Ra. Thank you, Megan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much uh, for taking the time to be with us. Um, so as I said, you were, a, you were a journalist and a filmmaker before you became an editor and publisher. Um, I wonder if you could start by just telling us how you came to publishing and how you ended up founding Comma Press. Yeah, I was, uh, I was working as a journalist, uh, as a freelancer, and also sometimes as a, as a staffer, uh, both regionally for regional presses, uh, regional magazines and for uh, national newspapers. And uh, I was doing cultural journalism, so I was from, uh, interviewing and reviewing lots of writers and I just learned through talking to writers uh, that at that time this was around the turn of the century uh, 2000 or just before um, at that time there was really no platform for the publishing of short stories um, lots of writers uh, lots of novelists were still writing short stories but they had nowhere really to, to, to place them to see them published or very very few places um, and some of them even kind of self-published them uh, whilst also publishing their novels with, with major publishing houses. Um, so uh, I just approached, uh, I, I approached the magazine that I was with and I talked to some, uh, some publishers that I'd developed relationships with, including uh, an editor called Simon Prosser at Penguin. And together we kind of explored this idea of regional, uh, regional short, short fiction, short fiction set outside of London, outside of the home counties. Uh, set in cities in the north in particular. Uh, media and culture in the UK is very, very, very centralised um, around, around London and what are called the home counties. So there were two problems really. Uh, there were two kind of uh, gaps in the market. One was just the, the lack of short fiction being published in book form and also uh, the lack of writing that was, that was set in and about uh, what perhaps... Uh, kind of patronizingly referred to as the provinces. Um, there's, uh, there's a huge amount of creativity in the north, but at the time, the only narratives about the north or the northern cities were kind of exoticized uh, and uh, their northernness, their grittiness, and all the cliches associated with that uh, were kind of pushed to the forefront in the way that they were marketed uh, and the kinds of books that were being published. So we wanted to create um, a space for different types of writing about those northern cities and, and set in those cities. 
um, and, and, and a space for short fiction. So I worked with a number of magazines, uh, starting off in Manchester, kind of listings magazines, art magazines, uh, to distribute them free with those magazines as a kind of like a free pull-out supplement. Uh, so we did it in four cities across the north, Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds and Newcastle. Um, and then it kind of slowly grew into a book project uh, and, a, and a publishing house. Um, also at the time, kind of regional journalism, print journalism was sort of dying um, in, in the north. Um, there was a lot of free sheets and free newspapers uh, flooding the market, national free sheets. Um, and the old model of uh, newspapers being funded primarily through people buying them was, was long gone. And so, yeah, regional journalism was dying and I had to make a decision, either move to London and carry on as a journalist or do something else. And I, all my friends and kind of, yeah, my social life was, was very much still here. So I, I decided to do something else, which was, as I say, slowly set up comma. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, you can't be interested in the short story as a form without being interested in it as a, as a kind of international kind of uh, form. Uh, so very early on, we, we started commissioning translations and we started publishing work from all over, all over the world, but from many, many different languages, starting with Europe, but then moving further afield. Um, um, the short story is a very, very international form. It jumps around in terms of its influence um, it's, it's very translatable in terms of, uh, it has, it sort of gathers up its context, the short story, much more than a, a novel can gather up its context and, and can be transplanted into another, uh, another cultural context much more easily, I feel. Um, mm. so we're always very, very keen to, to kind of hit the ground running with translation work as well. Yeah, I've heard you say in, in other interviews that, uh, Publishing the short story is an attempt to democratize literature. I think um, I was interested in that in that framing and what it is about the short story that makes it uniquely able to do that. So you're saying it's sort of translatability, but is there anything else about the short story in particular as a genre? Absolutely, there's, there's lots of ways in which it's democratizing. Um, just simply in terms of the, the logistics of uh, translating, for instance, if you want to do a, a uh, if you want to look at the, the latest Egyptian author, you could go, or Egyptian writing at the moment, you could go for one Egyptian author and publish a book, or you can publish an anthology of 10 different stories, uh, which will all contradict each other stylistically, if it's a good anthology, um, and it will offer different points of view. So the, the anthology in itself is mm -hmm. a far more democratic form than the, than the novel, uh, obviously, for sort of obvious kind of logistical reasons. But there's also... Uh, something in the short story which lends itself to uh, kind of um, uh, underdog or peripheral points of view. Um, the, the quote that I'm always quoting uh, is a line from uh, the Irish writer and critic Frank O'Connor in his book, The Lonely Voice, where he talks about the short story. He says the short story is, is different to the novel uh, because it doesn't have heroes in the traditional sense of the novel. By that he meant uh, characters who are important within their own fictional space. So people that other people look up to, people that are successful or find success, people that, uh, you know, win, eventually win power and influence and things like this, mm. um, and are critical players in that fictional universe. The short story, uh, according to Frank O'Connor, uh, doesn't uh, foreground those kinds of characters. It foregrounds what he calls submerged population groups, which mm. by which he meant 
underdogs, people on the peripheries, people without stake in society, uh, people who are disenfranchised, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, if, for instance, you want to uh, uh, publish uh, a kind of the voices of refugees or the voices of people uh, uh, grassroots activist activism, if you want to focus on topics like that, the short story is much more capable of of doing that because it's is automatically saying I'm, I'm not really interested in you know the great leaders uh, of the past or historical figures or successful figures we all know you can do that version of those stories you can talk about Steve Jobs being a successful uh, uh, migrant or, or whatever but you can you can also just talk about ordinary people and the short story gives you that permission to talk mm -hmm. about ordinary people whose whose importance or or uh, position or status in their their world uh, is is you know isn't something that's required for our attention. Mm. So interesting. Um, I'm also curious, just on the side, the, the sort of more um, practical side of the work of publishing and how you go about finding your titles, if there's anything sort of specific about, <laughs> um, about finding short story writers, if there's some part of that process that's different than it would be if you were publishing novels or, or nonfiction, for instance. I mean, you mentioned that you have um, a number of authors who are publishing or that part of what made you interested in short stories was that you had authors publishing in, in prominent presses elsewhere, their, their long fiction, but having to self-publish. Um, their shorter stories. So, you know, anything, anything about uh, how you go about finding your, your titles? Yeah, I think most editors will give you the same answer and it's really, really unhelpful, but it's a really easy answer, which is <laughs> they're looking for something they've not seen before. I mean, that's yeah. really, really difficult. It's defining it in the negative and it's not very helpful thing to, thing to hear as a, if you're a writer, uh, but they just, uh, we're all looking for something different. Um, the way the market works is the opposite in terms of marketing a book. Mm. It, it markets you in terms of what you're similar to and what you're like, and it, it, it finds out where you are in the constellation of influences and styles and says you're, you're a little bit left of this writer and a little bit, you know, down a bit or south of <laughs> this writer. Um, but, but what we're really interested in, in terms of editorially, we're just interested in something that is, is fresh and surprising and, and, and shocking and, and new. Um, and it's that whole kind of make it new kind of imperative. Um, sometimes that will be a stylistic thing. Uh, and if you're lucky enough to have a writer who is producing something which stylistically is nothing like anything you've read before, then, then you're, you're very, very lucky. And uh, the short story allows you to, to kind of push that envelope a lot as well, because the short story is, contains its structure in the, uh, and, and can play with its structure and, and uh, create literary conceits out of its structure that just can't be uh, can't be sustained for a novel. Uh, you know, you can you can tell a short story backwards, or you can tell a short story uh, in which time is moving at a great pace. Uh, you know, so geological time is speeding past, a stick speeding past. You can tell a short story where there's uh, you know where everybody's mad or the main characters are. Uh, uh, a cockroach or a beetle you can do lots and lots of interesting things with short story but you, they just wouldn't kind of keep the reader going necessarily the intrigue i uh, wouldn't keep the reader going for for a novel um so uh so there's a lot more uh expectation when it comes to stylistic ingenuity and plasticity and, and innovation um 
but it's also uh, one of the main things I'm, I'm always surprised by is just uh, how many different voices and points of view are simply not in there when it comes to the canon, the kind of mainstream publishing or, or what's being published elsewhere. So, you know, um, recently we published uh, a short story by a, uh, a weaker writer um, and in a book called The Walls Collapse uh, and another story by, uh, or sort of story stroke essay by a Rohingya writer in a Cox's Bazaar, in a refugee camp at Cox's Bazaar. These are, these are points of view that we, you know, we all know about Uyghurs and Rohingyas. Uh, kind of uh, the, their general plight and condition, but we aren't hearing from them. Uh, so often, we, when it comes to uh, learning about the rest of the world, we traditionally send our people out there, you know, in a, in a kind of literary version of the old grand tour. We, uh, when it comes to journalism, media, we send familiar faces, our reporters, our trusted man in the field, we send it, or woman in the field, we send it out into the unknown, and they present. Uh, these foreign lands is even more foreign um, because because it's, it has to be com it has to be packaged in a in a kind of domestic way uh, or a British way in our case and we just don't we don't hear those points of views from or, or, or kind of experience those perspectives from uh, from the people we're talking about so you know the indigenous people or whatever so. Uh, so there's the actual space. When I say I'm, I'm looking for something new, that space of you know, for, for what is new is huge. It's completely untapped. There's so much that uh, there's so much that's, that's repeated and recycled in terms of our narrow culture. Um, there's you know there's an infinite space of untapped uh, kind of uh, novelty and newness out there. Um, it's actually much, much easier than, than you think. You just have to look in different places. Yeah. Well, I know Kama also hosts um, a couple of different prizes, uh, a short story prize, an emerging translators prize. And I was curious if that's one primary way um, or in terms of translations, if, if you're often taking pitches from translators themselves. Um, yeah, we're, we're approached all the time by translators and uh, we're continually looking for new translators and young translators and, um, and trying to widen the, the, the pool of translators that, uh, that, that we work with, both, both in terms of the different languages that they're translating from and also uh, the, uh, the kind of uh, the demographic and of, of those translators themselves. So, so um, I'm occasionally Kind of approached by a translator who has, uh, in, you know, real really in-depth knowledge of a particular country or uh, culture, and they propose to me anthologies and projects. So, and that's that's fantastic when it happens. Like we did a book of short stories from uh, Khartoum, uh, capital of Sudan, and that um, ended up being, I think, it was the first uh, properly uh, produced and distributed. Uh, anthology of short fiction translated from our, from the Arabic from Sudan ever. I think there was a pamphlet that came out in the 80s uh, in connection with the US embassy. But this is the, this is the first kind of proper anthology that's ever been translated from the Arabic. So um, so that comes from that came came about through trying, two translators approaching me and giving me like a 
an amazing introduction to Sudanese writing and proposing all different stories and writers and, and a, just a conversation between them. And it's, uh, it's, an, it's an amazing experience. So we're always looking for new translators. We're also trying to uh, broaden uh, the non-European kind of work that's being translated in, in, in the UK. In the UK, we're famously uh, a little bit reluctant when it comes to reading, working in translation. Um, many years ago, the, the, band, the, the much bandied around figure was at uh, British bookshops, and we have 3% of their work in translation. Whilst if you go into a French bookshop or a German bookshop, it's more like 60, 70, 80%. Um, I think we've got a little bit, little bit better since then, but it's still very, very small. So we don't read much in translation. Um, and that which we do is often European writers and European languages. Um, so there's, there's a huge amount of work to be done uh, there. So this year we're publishing a, a Hindi writer, a Dalit Hindi writer, uh, and we're, we're publishing Kurdish, uh, Kurdish science fiction. So yeah, there's, there's lots of other languages out there and lots of uh, opportunities really for, for breaking new ground and, and for giving, giving a platform to, to writers that are not represented and languages that are not represented. Yeah, I mean, I think we can probably give you a run for the money in, in the US in terms of <laughs> publishing translations as well. I mean, it's a, um, that sort of persistent monolingualism and, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, um, provincialism really, I think is yeah. a problem in our industry as well. Um, could you give us a sense of what, uh, I mean, do you have a sense of who Kama Press's readers are? Um, how would you characterize your readership? It's a, a, a variety of different, but sometimes overlapping segments. Uh, it, it's, it's really tricky because the short story allows you to do so many different things and that's, what, that's the fun of it. Um, so we have a, a horror uh, genre kind of uh, and project or series. We have a historical fiction series. We have uh, a science, sort of science fiction series, uh, lots and lots of literary fiction, lots and lots of kind of uh, international translation work, obviously. And they all have different audience groups. Um, and we've just recently re-released uh, a, a classic text from 1949 by a, a British science fiction writer um, and horror writer called Nigel Neal, uh, this book that was out of print for many years. And that audience is, is a very avid, uh, loyal, a passionate audience um, and you might not think it has crossover with other other parts of what we do but but there is lots of crossover um, a couple of years ago we started a series of commissioning science fiction from uh, from countries and cultures that are maybe not associated with science fiction mm -hmm. particularly uh, so that started with Iraq uh, a book called Iraq plus 100 and Palestine and Kurdistan and Egypt are next um, and when we brought those out they were incredibly popular uh, from all different types of audiences. So science fiction audience readers that had never thought about you know, the idea of Palestinian science fiction uh, or Iraqi science fiction. Um, also, people who were interested in those regions and those, those uh, writers from writers from those areas generally uh, loved it. And so it was, it was like a Venn diagram of uh, lots of people with kind of passionate interest in in those those particular. Or, or those two or three different kind of interest areas. So there isn't there isn't a specific audience that we're we're going for. Um, obviously, our kind of radical history projects have uh, 
are kind of inevitably going to be uh, going to appeal to, to to readers on the left, um, readers that are sort of socially and politically engaged. Um, but then there's also we have a, a kind of uh, science into fiction series and a and a psycho psycho sort of uh, psychotherapy slash horror series, um, which again are, uh, are very very different. But at the core of it all is is the love of the short stories. So um, that is really the, the the alpha and the omega of what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is the short story, the short story do, doing something different and uh, pulling off uh, a trick that other forms just uh, couldn't, couldn't dream of doing. Yeah. Have things changed for Kama at all in this age of digital publishing? I mean, I think you were founded in, in the early 2000s, is that right? In... Yeah, we started in the early 2000s, 2003, and we sort of founded um, officially in 2007, incorporated rather. Um, yeah, well, the digital revolution was um, was slightly exaggerated. There was a point, I think, in 2012, 2013, where people were saying, if the next Dan Brown book doesn't do well in, in hard copy, then the publishing industry is going to implode hard copy publishing industry and we're all just going to be reading ebooks and there'll be no, the book will die. So there was a lot of kind of hype and exaggeration around that. And Ebooks have have plateaued and dropped to you know depending on what sector you're working in twenty percent of the market something like this um, so the so the revolution that was that was uh, heralded uh, didn't quite happen obviously it's still a, a major part of the um, major part of the industry but the the physical book paper book is uh, is still king and people still love it and cherish it I think the the bigger difference is uh, are really uh, a bit, the biggest changes have been over the last couple of years with the pandemic and uh, the way in which people are engaging with uh, literature and art generally, but especially literature and, and thought. It's gone massively online. It's gone to it's moved over to things like this podcast and and uh, video events, events on Zoom, uh, online events. Uh, it's that's that's really kind of um, change the way that we work as a publishing company um, and also the way communities are built so we we, we also run short story uh, creative writing workshops and courses and lots and lots of other sort of writer development events and they are generally much much stronger even now online than they were before mm-hmm. and, and I think uh, festivals are, have been suffering um, a lot and they have to but the, the number of festivals in the UK was huge, and I think some of them might drop away um, in the next few years, just because people have people are just still still a little bit hesitant to to go back to those kind of live events, um, mm-hmm. and and obviously the economy, the economic problems that Britain is facing at the moment is is uh, hugely impactful. Yeah, um, I know you've you've talked some about how. Um, how centralized this publishing industry has become (laughs) increasingly so, um, you know, with fewer and fewer players, both in publishing and in in book selling. Um, And I'm thinking partly about, you know, the the work that you're doing with 
the Northern Fiction Alliance in you know creating collectivities for smaller for smaller players. And I just wonder, I mean, you know, these could easily be your competitors, but if you could say something about what what becomes possible when you when you collaborate in that way. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, technically, they are all our competitors, really, because they're going yeah. for they're competing for eyeballs and reading time and things like that. So, um, but but yeah, there, there is something very very worrying about the increasing centralization of of the, what's now the big four. A few years ago, like twenty years ago, it was the big twelve. Uh, is now four, uh, and it and it may shrink down to to two. Um, ultimately, uh, when you're working in a in a corporate kind of uh, matrix uh, like you know like one of the big four, um, I'm not going to name anybody specifically. Um, your your department, your imprints, um, your writers, your individual titles are all judged on their balance sheets. So um, so it becomes a risk averse. Um, uh, kind of industry and it becomes an industry that works through copycats uh, kind of um, yeah through copycat books and formulas and trends um, and it becomes uh, a very kind of uh, not incestuous but it's a very uh, kind of insider network of uh, of decision makers and gatekeepers um, and uh, the, the European market and the North American market um, and the European language market is very, very well connected. They, everybody goes to the same two or three book fairs every year. Everybody meets everybody this, um, you know, every year. Everybody knows everybody because it's not that large an industry. And they kind of know each other's tastes and they swap books backwards and forwards. And, it, and you get a lot of predictability within that. Um, and I think it's just, it's interesting sometimes to remind ourselves that if you're working for HarperCollins, you are owned by... Uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch. So, mm -hmm. uh, if you're working for uh, Penguin Random House or one of their many, many uh, imprints, you're working for Bertelsmann's, um, a, a massive, me you know, Central European German media company. Uh, if you're working for Hachette, you're working for a, a retail conglomerate called Le Jardier, uh, which um, their main activity is sportswear, or their that's their mm -hmm. kind of. Their, their starting point was a sportswear uh, retail empire. So it's not, it's, these aren't uh, little cottage industries. They're not industries that are driven by uh, passion or, or uh, founder vision or anything like that. They're, they're kind of, they're just industries that are run by their own balance sheets um, and their profit margins, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's edifying to know Who's, who's paying for this, who's bankrolling this, who owns it ultimately. Even if you can't really draw a line between him and all the decision-making process, processes, um, you can't really create a causal link, but it is it's good mm. to know that. Um, and yeah, the things like the Northern Fiction Alliance are just a small attempt, one of, one of many around the world, um, where we're trying to just you know, bring people's awareness up a little bit about um, the structures of publishing. A lot of people walk into a bookshop, and when they walk into a bookshop, they think they're immediately doing something radical, bohemian, uh, you know, left field, uh, intellectual, you know, independent. All these adjectives that we like, they immediately think by default by buying a book they're doing that. And obviously, it depends on the book, and uh, in many cases, they are no matter who's published it. Uh, 
but they should also maybe know that this is a this is a marketplace that's driven by capital just like any other marketplace and it's a marketplace that drives out uh, other points of view ferociously um, and other perspectives and things that quotes don't work uh, ferociously um, and when it, you're just talking about independence is a way of sort of broadening the horizon of what uh, a book buyer might be thinking about. Mm-hmm. So for you, I mean, given this context, given the, the, um, the centralization that you're describing, given this, I mean, we're, you're all players in a capitalist <laughs> system. Yeah. In, in your view, what, uh, what would have to change for independent, radical, non-corporate publishing to really thrive? It's a really, really difficult question. Um, I think um, there needs to be uh, a breaking down of the way that publishing works at the moment. As I say, uh, everybody decamps to London Book Fair and Frankfurt Book Fair and uh, these major book fairs, and everybody talks about this, the same books and follows the same mm-hmm. same style uh, in the formula. And um, and they're all using kind of similar supply chains in terms of uh, the processes of marketing books. Um, so f- for some of that to change, you need to, you need to have uh, publishers that um, set boundaries about, around how they're going to work and how they're going to work differently. Um, and, uh, and, and really sort of um, kind of follow, follow through on, on those commitments. Like there's, there's a great awareness around lack of diversity in the publishing industry at the moment. There has been for, for many years, there's countless reports every year. There's a couple of new reports about how, how white and privileged and middle-class and London-centric publishing industry is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, every, and there's lots of initiatives, you know, recruitment initiatives and HR initiatives and things like that that, that are delivered or brought, brought into play, but it, it never changes. Um, and... Uh, you have to, you have to sort of, I, I don't know, you have to look at those people that are not subject to the same pressures. So a small publishing house based in the North of England, uh, North, North of England or based a long way away from the metropolis has more freedom to, uh, to break some of the, the, the pressures that result in publishing being white, middle-class, privileged, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's, there's, there's not going to be a, a magic uh, kind of silver bullet, um, magic bullet, rather to to fix any of these things. Um, but I think it will be a small incremental process of, of publishers saying we're not going to do this anymore. Like, uh, or, you know, we're only going to do this and sticking to those commitments. Um, a few years ago, we uh, a publishing house uh, said, um, and other stories in the UK said we're only going to publish women uh, in 2018. We said we're we're only going to translate from. The, the Muslim banned countries in, in uh, I think it was 2017. Um, so those kind of, uh, they, they may feel like gestures, but um, if people s- stick to them and uh, kind of follow them through, it, it will make, I think, some, some change. I also think that um, it may be uh, a question of, uh, of, of, of changing copyright law in some way, or straight changing some of the, the sort of st- structural um, um, 
kind of parameters around publishing. Um, I know it sounds, it's not a popular suggestion and, and it sounds like it would be very, very detrimental to authors, but when um, the copyright law is about protecting, um, protecting uh, existing kind of monoliths and uh, uh, copyright law in Britain was introduced to stop um, Scottish publishers uh, from producing quotes, knockoff Shakespeare plays. Mm. Um, and it was about restricting the rights uh, for doing that to, to London publishers. So it's about retaining power. So maybe we need to uh, have a kind of a radical rethink or, or, or some countries need to have a radical rethink about, about that. Um, and the way in which copyright does retain that power, it keeps power where power already is. Um, if you look at the film industry in France, uh, they have an amazing, amazingly healthy, and they always have done uh, a film industry, and that's simply because uh, cinemas uh, have a have a quotient to meet. Then I think it's thirty percent. Thirty percent. Don't quote me on this. It might be slightly different, but I think it's thirty percent of the films they show have to be French language films. That immediately creates an industry, uh, a very, very uh, uh, rich and prolific and enviable industry. Mm. If you look at the British industry, it's almost as if uh, there's some law which says, you know, we, we can only make films uh, about quaint Englishness as seen <laughs> through the eyes of uh, American audiences about, and, and they have to have a royal involved at some point, or a famous, or Churchill, or, you know, these established great figures. Um, yeah, if you, if you actually set, uh, if you set limits on the market, if you, or if you impose requirements on the market for, in a top-down way, you can actually help uh, uh, difference to thrive, uh, which is a slightly unpopular point of view. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, tell us what's up and coming at, at Comma Press. What, uh, what should we be on the lookout for in terms of you know what's going to blow our minds and be and be something we've never seen. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, no pressure. Then. Yeah, no. Uh, right. <laughs> so uh, we've got we've got an as I say we've got a, a series of uh, books of uh, science fiction from which uh, from from different parts of the world. So we've got uh, Kurdish and Egypt science fiction, uh, Egyptian science fiction coming out uh, later in this year in the new year, uh, which is looking at is trying to fold the past into the future. So it's using the future uh, and a future date to look at, to re-look at, re-examine examine something that's happened in the past in those countries. So the Egyptian one is particularly interesting because it's looking at the 2011 revolution in Tahrir Square and the 2013 coup, which over kind of destroyed that revolution, and key events uh, in in that uh, two-year period, uh, including things like the massacre of Rabah Square. Um, which are not known about, and if if are not talked about, and if people did talk about them, they'd be they would all be horrified. Um, um, so it's so it's about using uh, it's about using a different context to talk about uh, through analogy um, or allegory rather, and metaphor, um, talking about yeah, to, to explore those those historical moments. The Palestine for Sunday book that I mentioned looked at the Nakba of 1948 and all the stories were set hundred years after that. Mm -hmm. And these book work, uh, books work in a similar way. We also have uh, an anthology which will be followed by a whole series of, uh, of uh, superhero activist stories. So uh, there's, a, there's a book called 
uh, the first book in the series is called The, the, Cuck the Cuckoo Cage. Uh, there's a tradition in uh, British protest history or kind of a folk tradition of certain political movements, grassroots movements, especially sort of pre-industrial movements, uh, uh, banding under, banding together under a specific pseudonym or a mythic character. So the Luddites, for instance, uh, was an ongoing movement in the late 18th century, early 19th century uh, against automation and the replacement of jobs uh, with machines. Um, and it's uh, conducted its business under this figurehead who was often a large man for some reason, that's not fully understood, uh, dressed in a, in a petticoat and a, a woman's bonnet. Um, and there's a, there's a series of riots in, uh, in Wales and South Wales in the late 1830s, early 1840s called the Rebecca Riots where uh, local men would dress up in the, and in the middle of the night, go out and smash up toll booths, but also enact a, a certain kind of to and fro, like a scripted performance. Uh, and there's lots of these, lots of examples of these. Um, and they're, they're a little bit performative. They're kind of like a cross between cosplay, uh, amdram, amateur dramatic theater and, and protest. Um, and and a kind of rough music or chivalry. Which is a or Skimmington, which is a kind of folk tradition in, in rural communities, uh, dressing up a figure and kind of parading with that figure. Mm. Um, it's a very strange uh, tradition, and it's and it's not really talked about or, or much known anymore. But it seems to have the, the dress up component of it seems to have some connection with super or had some uh, kind of similarities with to the cosplay culture around superheroes. Mm. Uh, this adoption of of these other identities. And often the character has kind of super, supernatural powers of some kind. Um, so what I did was I asked a, a bunch of writers to kind of relocate, uh, transplant those, those characters, those figures into contemporary Britain uh, during the lockdown as well, uh, and write and, and set them in motion against uh, similar sort of political struggles in the present or in near future Britain. So, and give them superpowers that, uh, as well. So it's kind of trying to radicalize the superhero. The superhero is like obviously uh, a ubiquitous form at the moment in terms of cinema and our TV, um, but it's also a really, really conservative form. If we look at the kind of the archetypes of the, the superhero canon, they're all about uh, either uh, protecting justice, you know, truth, justice in the American way, and they're kind of a, an inf a police, in, you know, like a, like a policeman, but with superpowers. All the or they're worse, they're sort of vigilantes who don't believe in the power of the state to solve problems like Batman. Um, so they're kind of conservative, uh, perhaps even right-wing entities uh, in terms of their role within society. They don't challenge social uh, injustice. They challenge uh, injustice according to very, very narrow sort of definitions like you know, petty criminality, theft, and things like that, um, and obvious kind of criminality. So um, um, this project explores the idea of, of resistance, uh, resistance movements and how that can interface with uh, superhero kind of culture. Mm. Um, and it, yeah, and it's, it's something that is, we've, we've delivered the first book um, and I'm commissioning a second book and I'm also looking at uh, an international kind of edition of that book, looking at uh, stateless peoples in particular. Uh, so I've commissioned writers from uh, Western Sahara, uh, Tamil writer, uh, Tamil writer, Palestinian, Kurdish, etc. Writers from um, 
from from people's demographics that don't have kind of state representation at a country of their own to speak of um, because it goes back to this idea of uh, the disenfranchisement of the short story character and, and how much stake they have in society and how society protects them or represents them in the case of many of these people not at all um, so so yeah it's, it's an experiment in in uh, uh, superhero activism <laughs> Right. Will you will you go over those three titles one more time? The the first you mentioned so, the Egyptian. It's a Egypt plus a hundred. Egypt plus a hundred. Kurdistan plus a hundred. And the cuckoo cage. The cuckoo cage. Fantastic. Ra, well, thank you so much. This has been thank a great you. conversation. I really enjoyed thank it. You. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Mm -hmm.